we were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about them. I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. Miho, thank you for doing this. I'm glad you're in D.C., and it's good to see you after so long. Thank you so much for having me. Great. Um, what we're going to talk about today is cybersecurity in Japan, cybersecurity in the private sector, and cybersecurity between Japan and the U.S. So a lot of ground to cover. Thank you for doing this. I'm really looking forward to it. Let's start with, I met with some people from NISC, where you used to work, and others from the Japanese government who said that Japan is working on a new cyber strategy. Is this something you know about? So Japan updates our national cybersecurity strategy every three years. And the latest one came out last year after the, the successful completions of Tokyo 2020 Olympic and Paralympic Games. And even though we already published a strategy last year, but because uh, 2022 is a really busy year for Japanese security because we just enacted a new inaugural Economic Security Promotion Act this May and also updating our national security strategy by the end of 2022. So I think that is why the Japanese government is reviewing the national cybersecurity strategies to make sure that on the ground is good. So you've been involved in Japanese cybersecurity really from the start. I mean, you've been doing this for a while. Well, I'm not that old. No, but I know. I'm... You began as a child. Uh, we'll make that clear. Um... Actually, from the, <laughs> the beginning of the, my, my babyhood. So. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. But where does cybersecurity fit in with the Economic Security Act, which is a, a big change for Japan? So it's given a different profile. How would you describe it? So I, I mean, as a Japanese, I'm really proud of what Japan is doing because you know, Japan actually created you know, the world's first uh, economic security minister positions uh, last year. And also the, the, so the, the new Economic Security Promotion Act has four pillars and all of them actually um, related to cybersecurity because you know, this act registration talks about the protections of critical infrastructure, more resilient supply chains, public-private partnerships on emerging technologies. So without having a good cybersecurity strategies, so nothing will happen. And also that Japan has to do our own efforts to do more economic security, but also uh, we have to remember that uh, we Japan has to also collaborate with the United States as a close ally, but also with other like-minded countries, including other partners of the Quad members. I want to come back to some of those topics, particularly public-private partnership in Japan. But before we do that, let me ask about supply chain security, because the Japanese economy is as tightly integrated as the American economy with China. So yes. it's going to be very difficult. What What's your thinking on that? And I'll tell you a quick story. An executive from one of the big Japanese tech companies called me up and he said, um, you know, a lot of our software is written in China. Is that going to be a problem? <laughs> 
what are you thinking in terms of how difficult it will be to disentangle this supply chain? So I think Japan and the United States uh, share the same concerns about not being transparencies in some parts of the global supply chains. So that is why that Japan and the United States and also other members of the Quad countries have been working on the, the market competitions, transparency and openness to, to make sure that not only technologies, but also like that bringing in new companies to do a better job about making the global supply chain more resilient. So I think that as long as countries and the companies abide by this big market principles and being transparent and open and going for market competitions, then we are always open for that. What's the reaction been in the big Japanese companies? American companies have somewhat grudgingly accepted that we're going to be decoupling, right? Is the reaction similar in Japan? So I, I think the decoupling is uh, not always uh, difficult because it's not only about uh, relationship between the specific companies, but also it's about trade between different countries and also it's about you know, how to get into supply chains to connect critical infrastructure services between different countries. So that is why it is so difficult because even though that you see risks here, you also see another risks there uh, between not only technologies, but also like trade and, and, and uh, international politics. I remember the old, much more directive uh, MIDI, right? And now MEDI. And MEDI has a good relationship with Japanese companies, different from what it used to be. But when we talk about who does what in Japan, it can be a little confusing. You've got NISC, you've got MIC, you've got MEDI, you've got NPA to some extent. Tell us how cybersecurity is organized in Japan. So I, I know that it's even confusing for the Japanese people to have to map out and who is responsible for which part of cybersecurity. So NISC is a Japanese national cybersecurity center. So that is responsible for crafting national level of cybersecurity strategy and policies and also the main point of contact of international cybersecurity collaboration and also the point of contact for the protection of critical infrastructure. What does point of contact mean? Well, because if you have too many organizations to coordinate international mm. policies or guidelines, then it's going to be really confusing. So that is why you have to have a one point of contact. It's the hub for the, the uh, international or domestic policy negotiation points. How about the others? Is it, There's always seems to be a little tension between... Uh, MIC and MEDI. Really? I saw that the Japanese are really in an app for harmonization. That would be great. Uh, (laughs) We'll stop here. But one thing that's different between Japan and the U.S. is that for better or for worse, DOD plays a much larger role in cybersecurity. And that's not true in Japan. 
So then you made a really great point because one of the biggest differences between the Japanese and the U.S. or well, maybe the Australian and the British cybersecurity posture is the involvement level of defense organizations or also intelligence organizations or agencies into the national cybersecurities. So. Of course, the Japanese uh, Ministry of Defense and Self-Defense Forces are responsible for a defense, national defense-related cybersecurity. But also, we have many other ministries and agencies in Japan that are responsible for other parts of cybersecurity. For instance, a METI or Ministry of Economy and Trade and Industries is responsible for industries. Cybersecurity, including electricities and also manufacturings, and, and the MIC or Ministry of Internal Affairs and Communications are responsible for telecommunications and, and IT. Versus, we also have Ministry of Educations for uh, universities and schools, and also we have other agencies that that, that focusing on the different fields. So it sounds really confusing, even to myself. Well, no more confusing than here, where we have quite a spread. But what are the mechanisms for public-private partnership? We, we in the U.S. have put a lot of effort into this and have coordinating councils, and now they have JCDC, and there's a whole set of mechanisms, mainly run out of DHS. But what are the mechanisms in Japan? So the the Japanese NISC, so Japanese versions of DHS CISA, has created sector council that is responsible for public-private partnerships to share cyber threat intelligence and also cybersecurity best practices between the central government and also Japanese critical infrastructure companies. But also that the other ministries and agencies, including the national police agencies. And METI and MIC also have a mechanism to share cyber threat intelligence with their covered critical infrastructure sector. So they have regular meetings. They have a distribution network. I mean, how does it work? So there are two levels. So so because there are policy people and also more technical people. So for NISC and the ministries. Of economy, trade, and industries, and the Ministry of Internal Affairs and Communications, and other ministries have cybersecurity-related policy committees. So they are convened academic and also industry experts to talk about now policy-related cybersecurity discussions. So they talk about cyber threat environment, but more general level versus the, the each ministries and the national policy agencies and have discussions. With their industry counterparts at the more technical levels, and also I, I'd like to highlight that not even before Japan enacted the Economic Security Promotion Act in May 2022, the Japanese police started to launch economic security outreach task force. This is NPA. Uh, yes, yeah. uh, and we, and so yes, National Police Agency and also Prefecture Police Department ah, okay. started to create their own economic security outreach task force mm-hmm. in not all of the, the, the 47 prefectures yet, but uh, most of the prefectures to reach talk to the executives of local companies and also trade associations to share 
the actual examples of economic espionage, including cyber economic espionage. Where does that leave us in terms of threat perceptions in Japan? What is speaking for Japanese companies, the Japanese view in general, how would you describe the threat? How would you describe the situation? Business executives started to get more interested in cyber threat involvement since Tokyo was selected to host the Tokyo 2020 back in September 2013. But it's more like you know, how to make sure to make Tokyo 2020 very successful and how we can create a good ecosystems for national cybersecurity capabilities and also talent development. But after the outbreak of the war in Ukraine and what we've seen, how China reacted to Speaker Nancy Pelosi's recent visit to Taipei, I think the sentiment towards cybersecurity has started to change in Japan. I think that the Japanese general public, including the Japanese business executives, started to perceive cybersecurity as part of more like national security rather than just business risks. That's an important change. Is it common across Japan? What, When you go to the boards of Japanese companies, do the boards get it now that this is a business risk for them and a national security risk? Of course, cybersecurity is both a business risk to them, but I think that more board members and business executives in Japan started to get that the cybersecurity is part of national security risk. Why I can say that because I started to get a lot of invitations from business executives to talk about the ongoing war in Ukraine from a cybersecurity perspective. And unless they're interested in and why this is important, what this is relevant to Japanese people or Japanese business operations, even though that this is happening in Ukraine, then they would not ask me to do that. Mm. Japan now has a new intelligence sharing relationship with Australia. Where does that affect you when it comes to cybersecurity? Japan and the United States already have an agreement to share sensitive intelligence between two allies. I'm really welcome that Japan created a similar mechanism with Australians, and we already did with Canadians. So because, as we already discussed, because we are only part of the big global supply chains, and if anything happens, to our critical infrastructure companies by disruptive cyber attack by either a ransomware attack or wiper attack, then damages can spread through this global supply chain to affect different sectors and different countries. So that is why then we have to share cyber threat intelligence and best practices as quickly as possible. And unless we have mechanism to share that kind of sensitive information in a secure and a comfortable manner, then no countries would want to share that kind of information with Japan. So I think that the more countries joining this mechanism to share this important information with Japan, then I think this is not only a good for Japanese security, but also for the United States and other like-minded countries. Is there a mechanism? Is there a formal mechanism? Uh, what? How does it work? Oh, the, with the Australians? With anyone. 
you can start with the Australian. So do you have regular meetings? Is there a communica- secure communications channel? What What is it? So I actually do not know because only, because only recently two prime ministers between Australia and Japan signed the agreement to share sensitive intelligence between the two countries. And I haven't seen any updates on how they would actually share the intelligence on the what kind of frequencies they will share, that kind of intelligence, or maybe that is also classified. Could be. That's a sore point. It used to be more of a sore point in the relationship in that Japan still has some difficulty with the issue of security clearances. Yes, but I think that Japan is more open to talk about the expansions of security clearance systems Japan already has uh, security clearance systems, mm. but it only covers the central government and also people who are involved in national security versus in the United States, there are more people involved in the security clearance systems. But again, if only take a look at cybersecurity, because cybersecurity can be part of the big national security or international security problem, as highlighted by the, the, the incident of Colonial Pipeline by ransomware attack in May 2021. So I think that now that the more people in Japan sees the why we need to have the expansion of security clearance systems to cover other part of uh, Japanese industries so that we can share cyber threat intelligence, not only between the Japanese government and industry, but also between the United States and Japan, and also with like, other like-minded countries, as long as we have that kind of that security clearance and information sharing mechanism. What is the situation now in Japan? Is it better or worse than it was, say, five years ago when it comes to cybersecurity? It's hard to say, right? Because now well, it's really encouraging and welcoming to see that more business executives, more government officials, and the more general public are interested in cybersecurity and they see the importance of the cyber threat intelligence sharings uh, as part of business risk management, uh, but also as part of national security strategies. But also that we see a lot more diversified threats coming from different actors. So I think it's always challenge for any country, including Japan, to how to catch up with the speed of technologies and also the evolvement of new actors. So let's start with some specifics. What's the ransomware situation like in Japan? U.S. just concluded a three-day conference on ransomware where they had 37 countries come and discuss possible measures. How much is Japan suffering from ransomware? Is this a big problem? What do you think of the efforts to work collectively against it? So according to a proof point on a U.S.-based cybersecurity company, last year, um, more than 60% of American companies suffered ransomware attack infections versus it was 50% in Japan, so Hmm. much less in Japan. And in the United States, more than 60% of victimized companies actually paid the ransom, but 
the ratio was only 20% in Japan.、Hmm. So I, I thought it's really interesting that Japan last year didn't pay much as American companies did. But I do not know what's going to happen this year because I started to see more news on ransomware attacks against Japanese hospitals this year. So this is really concerning because. We already seen that trend in the, from the beginning of the COVID pandemic in the United States and Europe, and now this is happening in Japan. So, even though the, well, the, the infection ratio was low in Japan last year, but I'm not sure if you know, Japan will be still st-、uh, remain lucky this year. Hospitals are always a good target. Why do you think the payment rate is different? It, four out of five Japanese companies refuse to pay. That's astounding. I, I thought it was astonishing. So the Proofpoint survey、uh, didn't do the the, the whole、uh, countries on this planet, and only ten countries, a major ones, in the West. But I I think probably because that well that the Proofpoint survey didn't explain why the ratio is so different、uh, between the countries. But I am guessing that it is、uh, because the Japanese companies see that if we pay, then the ransomware attackers would use that paid ransoms to launch another attack on the new victims. So they are trying to to not to pay. Getting back to economic security, the threat that worries me more is espionage. Right, and that is probably something that affects both business health and national security more than ransomware. What's the espionage situation, cyber espionage situation in Japan? So we see cyber economic espionage, but also cyber espionage to try to steal Japanese national security-related intelligence, and. And I think that Japan is trying to do more public attributions. Well, it's nothing compared to the U.S. level, but at least now from last year, I started to see that a big change in the Japanese policy. So, for example, until the last year, Japan always had been really careful about public attributions, and whenever they did. Then they're gonna be aligned with the timing of the U.S. government and also other like like-minded countries in Europe. However, last year, for the first time, when the National Police Agency's Director General Matsumoto did a weekly press conference, he publicly attributed cyber espionage attempts against 200. Japanese organizations, including Japanese companies and JAXA and universities, to Chinese PLA cyber unit and also tech Chinese another Chinese hacker group, and he also interestingly said that、um, we had already shared that intelligence with uh, other uh, in the intelligence counterparts in different countries, and we had. Attracted lots of attention from them. So that's really interesting. I, our mutual friend Greg Rattry is the person who came up with the term APT, Advanced Persistent Threat. And I said, Greg, why did you do that? It's because they didn't want to say China. This was the Bush administration, but Japan is now willing to say China. So it was the first time for Japan to do the standalone public attribution at that time, and、uh, this year. Japanese police combined cyber 
crime investigation units from all of the prefecture levels to one into the central government at National Police Agency to create a big cyber bureaus to facilitate and streamline the investigation of cyber crimes and also to, to facilitate the cooperation with other law enforcement entities in different countries and also the Interpol and Europol. And they actually did the second standalone public attributions to North Korean Lazarus hacker group last month. So because I think it took a while for the National Police Agency's cyber bureaus to get settled and start a national level of investigations. I think that as they already stated in the national security strategies, Japan is willing to invest more in cyber threat intelligence capabilities and also do public attributions to make sure to hold attackers accountable. So the U.S. has consistently ranked Russia, China, Iran and North Korea as the principal threats in cyberspace. And that includes not only state actors, but the fact that these countries tolerate, except North Korea, which doesn't have a private sector, these countries tolerate private actors and maybe even encourage them. What do you see in Japan? Do you have Iranians poking around? Do you have Russians poking around? What's the threat perspective for you? Sure. So when the Japanese government published a national cybersecurity strategy in September 2021, for the first time, they named specific country actors in that strategies, namely North Korea, China, and Russia. So those are the big ones. What are the Russians up to? Is it? I usually they usually don't do economic espionage because they don't really have an economy. What are you seeing from Russian actors? Is it political influence? Is it manipulation? So, well, Russia has been known for uh, cyber espionage, but to mainly target national security-related intelligence. However. Jim, did, did you see a really interesting national security overview published by the Finnish intelligence agency called SUPO last month? Mm. So they say that so well, Russian economy and industry have been suffering from the sanctions imposed by the West after the outbreak of the war in Ukraine. And because Russians' economy has been reliant on Western technology, so, so they need to catch up. But it takes time for any countries or any industry to to develop new technologies. So that is why the the Finnish intelligence agency is actually warning that the Russians would do economic espionage, including economic cyber espionage, to catch up. You mean catch up technologically? Yes. Boy, that's a vain hope. Nice try, though, on the part of the Russians. Well, I, I didn't say that no, 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 the Russians actually did that. It was like a well, warning from the, the Finnish intelligence agency, Super. How about political influence operations, though? And the one thing that's changed since 2016 is the Chinese have gotten better and more active. I think they had a little Russia envy. What do you see in Japan? Do you see We see a lot in Taiwan, of course, because of the cultural similarities. What do you see in terms of political manipulation online in Japan? So after the tragic assassination of uh, former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, we saw some impersonated social media accounts mm. impersonating actually Taiwanese people saying not very nice things about the assassinations. So the Taiwanese people 
got really offended by seeing those social media feeds and saying that this is probably to try to divide between the Japanese and Taiwan. And also, we recently saw that impersonated, fabricated Twitter feed actually impersonating the former defense minister, Nobuo Kishi. Nobuo Kishi is the brother of our late Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. The Russian embassy in London retweeted the fabricated Twitter account saying not very nice things about uh, recent missile attacks on the Parisian nuclear plant in Ukraine. I think it was photoshopped, not retweeting. So it took a while for the, the former defense minister, Nobuo Kishis, to find out. But he called out and asked that the embassies to delete that account. And after that, a Japanese Ministry of Foreign Affairs used their official Twitter account in Japanese and also in English and called out that this is fabricated and asked to delete it. And actually, they uh, deleted. So what's your priority list for cybersecurity in Japan? If you were going to rank the three things that Japan should do soon, what would be on that list? So one is to provide cyber threat intelligence fees more for business executives and also technical people, not only to ask for incident reporting from the industries to the government. That's the number one. And second one is joint cyber exercise to test the critical infrastructure companies' incident response capabilities actually working, not only among Japanese critical infrastructure companies, but also inviting U.S. counterparts and potentially expanding to other Quad members and South Koreans, maybe uh, Taiwanese in the future. And sadly, that we should have the open discussions about uh, the expansion of security clearance how to share uh, cyber security intelligence with Americans, but also with uh, other like-minded countries. So you're admirable in some ways because you faced some real headwinds when you started doing this in Japan. You're a kind of a pathfinder for cybersecurity in Japan. You've been talking about it consistently for years. How have things changed for you? Or is it, do you have a, you said you were getting a lot of invitations. But Japan used to be much more hierarchical, much more deferential, much more patriarchal. What's it like now for you in Japan? Is it better? Uh, well, well, Japan is my country, and, and I really want oh, to, and, to, and to I'm continue. Not, I'm not being critical. <laughs> so, well, yeah. well, no, no, I, I'm not saying that. So, so I'm really pleased to see that. Well, because I'm a cybersecurity professional and I really want to prioritize uh, cybersecurity and I'm really pleased to see that my country is getting more interested in and also actually investing more in cybersecurity. Well, I'm really especially proud to see the successful completions of Tokyo 2020 last year. And I think that Japan is ready to do more for cybersecurity. For instance, so Japan, even though the Japan is not a NATO member, but Japan is a member of NATO Cybersecurity Center of Excellence in Tallinn, Estonia. And when Japan was in, first invited to officially participate in the, their annual cyber exercise called Locked Seals, teaming up with the United States, 
the United States didn't bring in any civilian agencies or critical infrastructure companies, but Japanese military defense and self-defense forces actually invited civilian agencies and critical infrastructure companies. And they did again with the British this year with critical infrastructure companies. So I think that the, even though that well, the Japanese Ministry of Defense and Self-Defense Forces under the, the strict restrictions under the Japanese constitutions, but J they actually see the importance of international public-private partnerships, and they are doing some important steps forward. I should have asked you about workforce in that the, one of the big concerns in the U.S. is the shortage of people with cybersecurity skills. What's, what's the workforce like in Japan? And particularly, you know, you've seen it for a while. As it, it, when I first went to Japan to talk about cybersecurity, you probably could have gotten everyone who did it into one large room. What's it like now? Um, so, <laughs> no country would ever be able to say that well, we have enough number of cybersecurity professionals. We don't know any countries feel like we are lagging behind uh, in terms of cybersecurity talent development. But now I see more universities and graduate schools to to provide mandatory cybersecurity courses for any students to enroll in, and also the Japanese, well, major companies, of course, but Japanese big companies are investing more in the, the cybersecurity skills and also to educate and uh, raise a cybersecurity awareness of the entire employees. So that is encouraging. Great. Have I missed anything, Miho? What would you want to talk about? Find any final words? I really appreciate um, uh, your interest and your support and general support to Japan's cybersecurity and really hope that the audience and who are listening to this podcast series getting more interest in Japanese cybersecurity because it's a, it's a teamwork, not a standalone work. So more people from different countries are interested in cybersecurity and more diversified skilled people are interested in cybersecurity then we're going to be stronger and we can be attackers with collective insights and collective defense and thank you so much uh, it's great seeing you thank you for doing this thank you so much thanks for listening See you on the next episode.